Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. Salutations to anyone listening on the Temple Beth Am podcast whenever you happen to be listening and wherever you happen to be listening. Um, this, we're, we're now back to finally a consistent rhythm. The calendar has been crazy recently and I appreciate everyone's flexibility, but um, we're now, we're now going to be meeting regularly for months in a row, um, barring any catastrophe. Okay, so uh, we are in the fifth chapter of the book of Shemot. We read verse six the last time we met, which was two weeks ago. Let's read it again. We have some really interesting chunky Rashi's coming up, something having to do with sermonica, some pure grammar. Um, and it will be another opportunity for us to go slowly through a section that you could, whose basic outline you could tell by heart. If I, if I put you on the spot right now and you know ask you to tell me about the Israelites and the taskmasters and Pharaoh, you could tell the basic story, but there are details when we go slowly uh, that um, that are illuminating, illuminating both narratively and also kind of um, characterologically as we think about the emergence of our people, the way the Torah tells it. So chapter five, verse six, Vayitzav paro bayom hahu, on that very day. What very day? On the day that um, Moshe and uh, the El- and Aaron and not the elders said, we need to take them out to go worship to our God. And just a reminder that verse five and verse six, we, and thank you for the reminder, Larry, that we're on verse six. We discussed this last time. Uh, two verses in a row that Pharaoh is speaking without an um, interruption, which at least begs the question of, of, of how it got edited in this exact way, right? Because verse five was Pharaoh said to um, um uh, to um, Moses and Aaron that you're you're getting in the way of their work, um, and now in um, uh, now he's saying etanoxim uh, ba'am he commanded the taskmasters viet shotrav and its officials its officers we would use the word policeman now but that's a very minor word lay more saying and we don't have the content of what he says yet but he's addressing two categories of people the nogais the word lingos means to um to drive hard uh, to supervise harshly and et shotrav and and the reason why it's et shotrav is it's the the it of shotrav because it's hashotrim shalo the shalo is the am, the people, which is a masculine verb in Alaskan man in Hebrew. So the question is, what is an ogais here and what is a shoter? And that's where we are. And we'll pick up the Rashi's on Hanogsim. Unless anyone has a question on the on the shot right there. Once? Okay. Uh, let's see who has not uh, read in a while. Renee, do you want to read the Rashi on Hanogsim? Um, I would also like to dedicate our learning today to Am Yisrael, since we are going to be celebrating Israel Independence Day. And if it's available still, the Israel ceremony for Yom HaZikaron was absolutely breathtaking. If it's available and you can see it, it's worth it. Thank you. And we have our own, by the way, uh, Tekas Ma'avar tonight, starting at 6.15. Tekas Ma'avar literally means the, the ritual of transition where we move from Yom HaZikaron to Yom HaZikaron. Um, 6.15, I think, in the sanctuary. And then mincha, and then a a joyful ma- a mari with a- aspects of halal 
to bring in Yomatsbut, and then annual meeting, right? The most ex extraordinary 90 minutes of your life every year, the annual meeting. So we hope you'll join for some or for all of that. Um, and of course, uh, and just so if you're confused about the dates, because normally Yom HaZikaron is the fourth of ER, and Yom HaAtzmut is the fifth, it's moved up a day because we never have Yom HaAtzmut celebrated on Shabbat or on Erev Shabbat or Shabbat for that matter. So since the fifth of ER would be Friday, this year it's moved back to Thursday, which means Yom HaZikaron is moved back to Wednesday. Okay, yes, Renee. Okay, so see if you can make sense of that. He's what he's the the, the headline is that he's making a a, a verbal. Um, distinction between a nogais and a shoter, and he's assigning it to different categories of people in the story. Okay. So the taskmasters, uh, they were Egyptians, and the guards were Israelites. Okay, so the first thing he says is we have two plural nouns in the verse. We have, we have the plural of the nogais and the plural of the shoter, and the first thing he wants us to know is this is not just different roles. These were roles held by different people. The Nogais were Egyptians, and the Shotrim were Israelites. Okay, uh, uh, go ahead. And the taskmaster was in charge of uh, several uh, guards. Good. Literally, mimunet from the verb limmanot, which means to appoint. Right? They were they they were appointed. It's probably connected, or at least as a cousin to the root meaning minyan to count limnot. Uh, but it's not the exact same verb, but they were appointed over several shotrim and the shoter. And the, and the uh, guard was in charge of uh, supervising those, the ones that didn't work, who did Good. work, who did Good. work. Good. Um, so the verb lirdot means to have dominion over. The first time we have that verb is back in um, Breshid when when we're told that we're or do that we humans have dominion over the other animals in the uh, in the world. So the we've got a hierarchy. We've got Pharaoh. Underneath Pharaoh, I suppose we have his you know his coterie. Then we have the Nogsim, who are Egyptian taskmasters. Underneath them, we have Shotrim, who are Israelites. And what are the Israel and the Israelites are being asked to be rodet to have dominion over and have control over those who are actually doing the work. By the way, uh, to, to you know, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, what is this evocative of in our more recent Jewish history? Right? And 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 maybe what were they inspired by? Right? So I'm obviously referring the capo to the yeah, capos, capos yeah. are going on in the concentration camps. Yeah, and the Sandra commander, right? So so our worst oppressors have involved invol involuntarily, we imagine, or through some kind of a wretched pressure our own people to be supervising the, the oppression. Of course, there's a lot of interesting, controversial, painful material from the Shoah about any Jew who is involved on any level uh, in collaboration with the Nazis, right? And, and it's controversial because it's hard to know how to judge after the fact um, uh, someone who was put in that situation, whether it's Rudolf Kastner, right? Uh, or whether it's our, our dear friend, Zichron Olebracha, um, 
<laughs> Rachmil Hakman, who died uh, very early on in COVID, it's hard to believe he's been gone two years, who survived Auschwitz, survived Birkenau by being in the Sander Commando. The Sander Commando meant he was essentially hired slash forced, hired is too soft a word, by the Nazis to be involved in the workings of Birkenau, right? So is he a, is he a collaborator or he, did he have no choice? But whatever he is, he's the chauteur in this particular verse, okay? Uh, Norm, Norm Rachel, I don't know if Rachel's there. No, Rachel is in the east side. Ah. Um, I, I have a vocabulary question. How does one distinguish between a chomer and a chauteur? Good question. Uh, they rhyme, they rhyme and, they, and, they, and they sound like they're from a similar family. It's an entirely different root. Uh, when we play with roots, um, as we've discussed before, the two, first two letters of a three-letter root can be a family, and sometimes the last two letters of a three-letter root can be a family. But when the roots share just the first and the third, it's my understanding is that it's etymologically coincidental and more for alliteration than that they are etymologically, etymologically related. So shin mem resh means to guard, protect. Shin tet resh means to police and have control over. Um, in modern Hebrew, in, in Israeli society, they're more closely related than in biblical Hebrew, right? So you can imagine like Shomer HaGvul, the one who is guarding the border, and the Shoter, the policeman, are both part of Israel's, you know, force to protect the nation. But in biblical Hebrew, Lishmor was really mean specifically to guard or protect something, whereas Shoter was not to protect something. The Shotrim were not protecting anything. They're actually asserting control over mm -hmm. Um so they're, I think they're more different biblically than they are in Israeli modern Hebrew. Tova and then Barry. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I actually had a question because I would have read the verse the opposite. And even in making the parallel to the Shoah, it, it seems like the opposite. So I just wanted to, I guess, ask that question because I had assumed when I first read it that the taskmasters over the, of the people so I sort of read it of the people were fellow Israelites who were put in charge of being responsible for this group to get its work done. And the guards, the ones who enforced it in the end were the Shotrim, the, the Egyptians. And the parallel in my mind was in fact capos who sort of, maybe I this is maybe a misunderstanding, but I always saw them as working within the Jewish prisoners, and then ultimately you had the Nazi guards. Yeah. So I, I, I would have read this the opposite of the way Rashi reads it. So can you explain more why he went in his direction rather than the other? Two responses. Shot of the verse in isolation, I think it's six of one, half does the other. I think, I think there's nothing that I know of in the, in the biblical meaning of a nogais versus the biblical meaning of a shoter that wouldn't permit you to flip it if you are working from the assumption that some of them were Egyptians and some of them were Israelites. Second comment, for those of you who have this one, right, not all of you are working out of this homage, those of you who have this one, there's an interesting footnote uh, that, that goes to that very question. So I'll read it out loud because I, I, can't, I can't bring that footnote onto the screen uh, like I can with other sources on Safaria. So it's footnote 37, which is in the last line of the Rashi, which is on page Nun Vav of this Chumash, on the word Hashotrim Yisraelim, that the Shotrim were Israelites. The footnote says, 
de'im locate. Because if it were not this way, in some ways, actually speaking to like a phantom comment like yours, Tova, like the mm -hmm. editor is actually anticipating your comment, which is to your credit, right? The ed ed editor is saying, well, why couldn't have Rashi read it the other way around? Why would it have been that the Shotrim were shouting El Paro to Pharaoh and not the taskmasters? And why would the Shotrim um, you know, hit and, and battered and not the taskmasters? What's he referring to? Flip ahead in whichever Chumash uh, you have to verse um, 14 of this chapter. Actually, 13 and 14. We'll do this section slower when we get there, which is a few verses later. In verse 13, because Pharaoh is going to um, be speaking for a while about what this new edict is. Verse 13. The taskmasters kind of pressed hard. Um, saying, finish the work you have to do every day, to make all the straw. That's what the Noxim were doing. And what were the Shotrim doing? Vayuku ha Shotrim. The, the, um, the uh, Shotrim of the children of Israel, which grammatically could mean the officers over them, not the officers from among them, but they were beaten, right? The Shotrim were beaten. Asher Samuelahem. Noxe Faro, the, the, the Shotrim that the that the Noxim had put in charge of the Israelites were beaten. Um, and go back to now verse 15 by Avo Shotre B'nai Israel and those Shotrim, Vayitzaku El Paro, and they shouted to Pharaoh. So Rashi doesn't reference it, but it's it's kind of built into the Pshat later on that whoever the Nogais was, they were pressing this new edict hard. And whoever the Shoter was, they were shouting out to Pharaoh and they were actually beaten for the lack of Israelite fulfillment of this new edict by influence, doesn't have to be the way, by inference, you can imagine, of the two layers of a hierarchy, who are the ones who are more likely to be pressing more, the Egyptians, who are the ones more likely to be shouting um, out and being beaten for lack of fulfillment, the Israelites. So again, in its own context or sorry out of context that one verse could you read either way but um that's how this editor chooses to explain rashi's read and i think it makes sense given what's coming up everett fox also says that in several of the semitic languages nago is denotes pressing or overpowering uh yeah so pressing and overpowering on its own could also be referred to referring to the capos but it's hard to make sense of the of verses 13, 14, 15 coming up if you don't flip them. Right. No, I, I agree that does clarify it. But I just have to say from a Egyptological perspective, uh, one of the things is that we know quite a bit about how work gangs were organized in Egypt. Admittedly, work gangs that were corvée, not slave labor, but corvée, local people who worked during the season of the flood to do the, the massive building projects like the pyramids and later monuments. And they were organized into work gangs that were very self-identified. They were almost like sports teams, hmm. they had their own names. They would put their names on the blocks that they had placed in the pyramid. You can actually find the names of the work gangs that placed those blocks. And there wow. was sort of an esprit de corps 
around them. And they, as I said, they gave themselves these names and they were hierarchically organized within their own group, so to speak. Now that doesn't necessarily obviously speak to this situation where you're talking about slave labor, but historically in other contexts, that's the way these kind of work gangs would have been organized. So for what that's it's worth. They actually found inscriptions yeah. identifying the, wow. Absolutely, they've actually found, uh, one of the oldest papyri found describes the bringing of blocks, huge blocks up the Nile River wow. and describing the gang that's doing it, the name of it. And, it, and it's clear that there's, there's even a competition between gangs to get more work done. Wow. It's, it's quite fascinating. Did any of them say like the Hebrew hammers or something or, <laughs> or, or a little bet hey saying Desra Hashem? Right. Well, as I said, a lot of these are from an earlier period uh, where we were talking about corvée labor. So it's a very different kind of system. But it, what's that word corvée? Is that an cor English word? Corvée, it's actually a French in origin, but it is used in English. It's labor that's not forced labor. In other words, the, the pyramids were not built by slaves. They were built by the population drafted into work as a kind of tax. It was a tax they were paying during the period of the flood when the farmers couldn't farm their fields. They had to wait for the floods to go back. So it was over a period of several months. And it was not slavery. It was really seen as paying a tax and participating in a project that hmm. most people bought into. Um, what, how do you spell that word? C-O-R-V-E accent A-G-U-E. Corvée. Corvée. Fascinating. Thank you for that. And I agree with what Sue, Sue wrote. Your, your, uh, your knowledge and expertise is impressive and adds so much to this conversation. So I'm so grateful that you, you share it when you have something. Um, great. Let's go to Barry. Don't hear you yet, Barry. Sorry, on mute. Uh, there was a question earlier, like an hour ago, about uh, Shamor and, and Shoter. And it just came to me, the, the poetic, the po poetic tree of uh, uh, Shamor as a whore. It's, it's like a, a voluntary taken upon uh, to do these things. Shoter, it doesn't, it's not a voluntary. It's, uh, and, and also it's just the automatopoeia uh, uh, of uh, Shamor as a, as a softer and Shoter is like a hit. Hmm. So, um, uh, I, that second comment is really interesting because we do know that organically words sometimes we're, we're or organically created to have a, a sound that matches its meaning, right? Like think of how many, in how many languages the word for mother is, you know, aligns with one of the first sounds of the baby makes. Um, so that's interesting. And, um, and yes, in the, in the biblical, in the biblical language of Hebrew, Lishmor has almost an entirely positive association to protect or volunteer or to be commanded by God to protect and guard something that is um, that is precious, which is very different than a show terrier. Thank you for that, Barry. Uh, Rebecca, can you hear me? I now? can better. Yeah. Okay. Um, I wanted to go back to the word shoter, um, which is also linked to shtal in Hebrew, like shtal chov, a bill. And if you look up the root for shtal, um, the origin is supposedly. Akkadian, which means, and it means something written or to write. Hmm. And so it sounds like Chotel in this case is sort of like the person authorized perhaps by the Noxim or by Paro to look over the workers. So it sort of agrees with Tova's um, 
view from 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 uh, from the history there. So it's more of a a it's it's less of a um, I think it says less of what they're actually doing and more about the fact that they're authorized to be in charge to some extent. That is fascinating, and, and you know what's what's so wonderful about this study is that there are insights happening all the time. I've never, I don't think I'm, I'm consciously aware of even once in my life connecting the word shoter with star, even though I've used both words all the time in my, in, in, in Hebrew, modern Hebrew and biblical Hebrew. Star is a document for those who don't um, recognize the reference. Uh, I, I just didn't think of it once, what the connection is. I'm just seeing if BDB, let's just, let's go to BDB a second and see if there's anything there. I'll share screen. Um, what does BDB say? Assyrian rites, Sataru, very good. And Shoter, official officer, a scribe secretary. Look at that. That a Shoter comes from that root. I never thought about that. Or an arranger, an organizer. A subordinate officer. In, in uh, um, which we'll get in, in Parshat Shoftim, Shoftim B'Shotrim. Interesting. Yeah, I forgot that in, in, in Parshat Shoftim, Shotrim was also the second. You have a Shofet and you have a Shoter, and the Shoter is, seems to be an underling. But it comes from the notion of right. Thank you for that. That's really rich. Okay, great. Uh, Alan, you are next, and then we'll see what, um, what Rashi has to say next. Yeah, I just wanted to say, if it, it seems that from the, from the very shot of uh, verse 14, in chapter five, that you have the hierarchy set because it says uh, that uh, the Shotre Bnei Yisrael Asher Samu Alehem Nikshe Paro. So it shows that they were actually designated by the Nikshe, the the Nokshim were the ones who designated the Shotrim. So that would be that would be an express reference to what the hierarchy was. Right at this point in. Back in verse six, we don't have that yet, right? Right, so, right, right. You're right. And just to correct one thing, because I know you like precision, it's a sin, not a shin. So it's a no gase, not a no gase. Ah, yeah. Thank you. But but you're absolutely right. That it that, that relationship that Rashi is talking about now seems to be clarified later on, which is what that footnote was, was pointing us towards. Exactly right. Okay. Uh, anything else on, this is the one Rashi on verse six. Anything else before we go to verse seven? Going once. Okay, let's go to verse seven. Uh, Joanna, are you able to read? Are you there, Joanna? Uh, okay, if you are, great. Uh, but let's move forward. Um, uh, Joel, do you want to read verse seven? Hope you're okay, Joanna. Okay. Um, do not gather to give um, straw to the people. Um, and they turned a verb in, a noun into a verb, Lilbon Levanim. Good. To make, to brick bricks. Good. Um, as, as you did yesterday and the day before, um, they will go and will um uh get, gather the straw themselves uh tevin good so um excellent first read that verb lotosifun is written very oddly 
you correctly noted, consciously or unconsciously, there's an aleph after the taf, which seems to suggest that it, the root is osif, like chagasif, the, the, like an asefa, a gathering, like Sukkot is the festival gathering. But if you look quickly at Unculus, he turns it, he, he, he pretends the olive is not there, lotosfun, without an olive. And what would the root be if there's no olive and it was just um, lotosfun without uh, taf samech pei? You shall not add? Correct, like Yosef. Right, so most people understand that the root here is um, ad- is having to do with additional rather than gathering. Why the olive is there, I've never found a good explanation for it. Um, maybe that's an old Hebrew way of writing even the root uh, lahosif to add on. Because- Why are they jumping through hoops to make the olive not there when it could make sense with the olive there? Ha- but how it translated it. Like, see if you can translate it again unclunkily with it meaning gathering. You shall not gather to give them straw. You shall not gather the straw to give to them. Yeah, I think it's stretchy because the meaning that makes more sense is particularly as there's going to be reference later in the verse to what you like, what you had been doing up until now. I think it just makes more sense. Maybe I'm maybe I'm just moved by the by the primary translation is don't continue to up until now you they've had to make the bricks from the heaven you've given to them don't do that anymore that's what is harsher about this particular um decree so i I suppose it's possible and if you go with legio difficultare right that the less the, the the reading that is makes less sense maybe the more original one because it's it's less likely that it was switched to a harder one it's possible uh, Everett Fox doesn't mean he's the only, you know, he's Everett Fox is not God, but Everett Fox translates it as you are no longer to from the notion of continuing additionally. I'd be curious to see if um, any of the translations in front of Larry in particular read it as Osef rather than Lehosif. Um, and let's just go um, before I get Stevie and Barry. Um, I love your. Uh, Joel, how you reference little bone levenim, a very Hebrew thing to 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 verb the noun, right? Whatever whatever it means to lovein, what you do when you're loveining is you're making levenim. To you know, we, we can't do that in English. You you don't brick a brick, but we have a sense of what it means to to form the brick. Sometimes in some ways we have that um, in in uh, uh, in English, but not nearly as commonly as in Hebrew. Kiltmol uh, shalshom don't. Make the bricks like the great coffee shop bookshop in Jerusalem, I think is the reference here, but I'm bummed if you know that reference. Kitmil Shmoshon literally means like yesterday and the day before. And we'll figure out what that means in context. Let them go, Heim Yelchu, um, and Koshashulahem Tevin. Let's pause on Koshashulahem. Um, anyone want to? And anyone have any, any associations with the verb leak, like leak shosh, kuf, shin, shin, and what it's doing here? Stevie, I see you unmuted. Um, the Makoshish Aitzim, the stick gatherer that gets executed for violating Shabbos, presumably. But, but, so, so, some actually do read it as that's not the reason, but anyway, putting aside. Um, but the. Right, before, so let's just. Let, let me just, before you keep going, let me just show everybody that verse. So later on in, in Sefer B'midbar, uh, Vayuhu B'nei Yisraeli B'midbar, 
the Israelites were in the wilderness, east, they found a person who was Mikoshesh Eitzim. He was, by, in, by inference, gathering wood, and, and he was killed. And um, it's a, you know, a short narrative talking about the sanctity of Shabbat. So here, Koshesh seems to gather. Any other references that people have in their mind to the verb Likshosh? Also a little bit like Koshi, Kushia, difficulty. Uh, that's interesting. That's from Kufshin Hay, um, whereas this seems to be like usually when you have a, a second letter doubled in a root, it's an intensifying or an expansion of the of the two letter root. What does Kash mean in modern Hebrew? Straw. Straw. Right. So now it's hard to know what's the chicken and what's the egg. That maybe the reason Kash means straw is because of this verb, right? But to leak, if kosh means straw, then koshesh means to, to do the thing you do with straw. What do you do with straw? You, you collect, right? Interesting, kashish has another meaning. I think I have this open in BDB. Hold on. Is uh, it related at all to kosher? I don't think so. It um, was yad le kashish, ah, a good. place where they made things in Jerusalem. Good. So look at BDB on koshesh. Kashash means to be old or to be dried up, right? So Yad Kashish is an extraordinary place in Jerusalem, founded by Miriam Mendel, that basically gives elderly members of the Jerusalem community something to be productive in. And they, you know, for at least a generation, you know, US wires had talus bags that were uh, woven together by, uh, by people at Yad Kashish. Um, and so the connection is, and this sounds, you know, I hope it doesn't sound the wrong way, uh, old and wrinkled, right? Dried up. So a kashish is, is a person that is dried up from their vitality as a piece of straw is a dried up stalk of, of grain, right? So um, uh, that, that may be the connection there. So going back into our verse, they should be going to koshesh to collect the straw or to do something with the straw um, that will be ultimately turned into the Lebeni. And that's a lot harder of a task, um, particularly when we get to the next verse, which we'll get to in a few seconds. Barry? Uh, well, I'm looking at, again, the balance of the sentence. It, it begins with the, um, uh, the term, uh, I lost my place here, um, the, the, the first term for gathering, uh, with the olive in it. Mm -hmm. um, and verse seven, yeah. And the question is why the olive? Uh, and and it, but it ends the other part of the sentence uh, also uh, talking about gathering. But the last part of the sentence, uh, you, they'll they'll straw their own straw. And the first part is, uh, as before, you, you, you have been a, a gathering to give to them. Um, so it, it, it begins with serving to them the gathering. And the last part is it, it's very hard. Uh, let them straw their straw. Let them straw their straw. Yeah, so it's 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 a it becomes a intensified. It's not just as before. It's intensified by this poetic structure. Yeah, and if you look at the at the uncleus, the translation of koshesh into Aramaic, he renders it as um, 
Yigabavun lahun tivna. So tivna is the noun Aramaic for teven, which means that the, the, the raw materials from which you make bricks. And govev is, is an intensifying of gove. What's a gove? A gabai. Originally, a gabai was not someone who called someone up to the Torah and said a mishaberach. A gabai was a collector, a tax collector. So a gobe, a gobev is like someone who's 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 bringing stuff in and heaping up a pile up. So that's how he renders uh, koshesh. Okay, Barbara, and then we'll go back to Joel and see what Rashi says in the verse. This is just a question: Why in the Bible is is straw tevin, but now you say in modern days it's kosh? Why did they change? Why have they? Why did they give up on the word tevin that's biblical and use the other word nowadays? I'm just curious. I think the best way to answer that is there's there's there are synonyms even in Hebrew, right? So there are words that mean similar things, and um, uh, maybe um, uh, Rebecca Menes uh, can correct me on this. I think in modern Hebrew, I, I, I know that kosh means the straw that you drink from. I don't know if you're a farmer and you're bailing up hay if the word there is kosh or not. I just don't know. I've never never done that. Um, and it might be that tevin is still used, but I think whether or not that's the case, synonyms, right? You know, mild, subtle differences of meaning that represent, you know, different aspects of a very similar thing sometimes just proliferate. Um, and there's some biblical words that are used and there's some words that were created anew when it, Hebrew got reinvented. I don't know if farmers to this day use the word tevin. Sue, what, what did Sue say? Kosh. Anyone, any, any, but, uh, do you know I if tevin, tevin is used? Tevin is also used. I think their cash is, is more, uh, yeah, they're both used. Got it. Great. A good question, Barbara. Okay, Joel, let's go to Rashi. Rashi is going to have a lot of things to say on this verse. And those who happen to know medieval French, I'm going to have a leg up. Tevin, Estebole, Belozi. In old French, Estebole. Hayu, Govlim, Otam, Im, Hatit. And I don't know, Govlim is my translation says, need it into the clay. Right. So they would need the, the straw into the clay to make it more usable. Right. So so you would so you would you would take the tevin, and what you would do, and whatever tevin is, he's saying it in, in ancient French, it's estouble or something like that, or estouble, and you would govel, you would knead or mix it in. Uh, my uh, one of the Rashi's I have in front of me, you know, has you know like a like a commentary on the Rashi, a running almost like translation. The Rashi says govlin means arvin vilashin. Arvin means to mix together, and lashin means to knead like dough the moist mud into the into the into the tevin and that what's what, what what makes the the mortar okay anyone who either knows french or knows english have any guess as to the etymological the modern etymological cousin cousin to rashi's estuble um stubble stubble exactly yeah, estuble, stubble it's the same word right okay so let me show you um, I, I, I found today that this was online, which is amazing what's online. Um, there is a wonderful book called Otsar Loaze Rashi. It's a list of all of the French words that Rashi uses throughout his commentary on Tanakh and commentary in, uh, on, on, the, on the Talmud 
and renders it into English the way we used to do this in rabbinical school before Safaria in the back, at least when we're studying Talmud, in the back of a standard Vilna edition of the Talmud, there's something I think I referenced before called the either the, the Matargim, who would tran the translator who would translate Rashi's French words into Yiddish, and then we would take the Yiddish word and go to a Yiddish English dictionary, and that's how we'd go. We'd go like Hebrew or to Aramaic, and Aramaic to Old French, Old French to Yiddish. It was the telephone game, and sometimes it would it would help us out. So this is entry number three thousand and seventy. Teven, estoble, kash, right? Hanish arba katsir. The stuff that is that it stays on the field after the um, harvest, not the stuff that's been left, like cut but was left behind, but still attached to the ground, the stubble. And but sorfati chalayom in modern French etule, anglite in English stubble, the Germanit stopel. Okay, so. Um, that all of a sudden makes sense that Rashi is saying, what are we referring to here? It's not the straw that was used um, for uh, feeding animals. It's the leftover stuff, right? That got mixed with some mud to make bricks and mortar, right? It's, a, it's, a show, it's showing that bricks was, you know, bricks were, you know, at least the Egyptians were good recyclers. Okay. Um, let me see if there's anything else in that verse I wanted to say before we see whose hand is up. While I'm thinking about that, I see Rick's hand. Um, hi. Hi. Okay, so um, in my Silverman, uh, it does give the old French estuble and then the English stubble, just to let everybody know it's in the Silverman. Um, so um, for the rest of the chapter, they're talking about the, the straw and not having it. And I just have a, 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 a macro kind of question. If the object is to make bricks so you can build things, why would you take away the supplies of your slaves in order uh, to punish them? The, the only effect is they're not going to be able to make as many bricks. So it, you can punish them all sorts of ways. You could beat them. You could, you could, you know, do all sorts of horrible things. But why this particular thing? And it just, it goes on sentence after sentence. Um, I was trying to find something else to to do with the Tevin, but it's like it doesn't make sense just operationally. So just wanted to ask that. Once once again, Rick, you're proving that you are not a cruel person. You, you, your mind can't even conceive of a way of trying to extract more than is possible out of even one's slave, right? Because you're not a you're not a sadist. But if you're a sadist, then you delude yourself into thinking that I can that the, that the way to make them suffer is to require is to require even more than what so they, they slept three hours yesterday well they'll sleep two hours today um, so 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 kolakavod for reinforcing to us that your mind doesn't operate the way a tyrant does but there are tyrants right there are tyrants who imagine that you've you've you pushed a population, even the population that you're relying on to help you to the limit, uh, I, I can push them even more. And sometimes that crushes the individual and sometimes that pushes the individual or the community uh, so far that it snaps back against the tyrant. That's obviously what we hope and pray for in that situation. So could, you're right to ask the question because you're a good man. Could I speak to that point? Please. Yeah. Um, it, it echoed for me because I was thinking about the same thing. <clears throat> I, it seems to me that all along, 
that yes, Pharaoh wants them working because he wants the product, he wants the, the result of their labors, but I always feel like it's also because he's using it as a method of control. Because this people has become large and potentially threatening, you want to keep them working. And so by, by this form of punishment, he's increasing their work and the time that they're building, exhausting them more. And especially in the aftermath of a bid to take them away, at least briefly, lest that stir up any kind of trouble, let's make their job even more exhausting and more time consuming. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the what's that that one line midrash in the Haggadah, right? In the, in the Arami Oved Avi section. My father's a wandering Aramean, which is this extended, simple midrash section, section of, the, of the Haggadah. I believe that the midrash on Vayavidu Otam Befarach, that they made them work Befarach. What does the word Befarach mean? It means ruth, we often translate it as ruthlessly. I think the midrash in the Haggadah is made them work purposelessly, right? Like it, it was work for its own sake. That it's not that it's not that Pharaoh re- was so reliant on them economically. And for the moment, I'm staying in a midrashic world and not a historic world, right? So th- this may not have been, you know, made sense if you're thinking about ancient economy, but that it, w- it was. It was work that wasn't even producing something that was needed. It was work for its own sake. So if you're making someone work just for their own sake, just just because, just for your own sake, and not because you need the product, then you can just keep making them make more. And so if it's more ruthless, that's the point. There's a terribly poignant scene in Schindler's List, where um, uh, the Amon Gut character, played by Ray Fiennes, goes to Schindler's factory. And he's touring it and they're making the pots and the pans. And there's a, an old Jew, I think he was the, the, the rabbi and the, um, who, who marries the couple at the end of the movie, um, is operating his machine. And the Nazi, you know, like, you know, sh- show, me, show me how you do it. And he does it very quickly. And he's proud to show him that he works the machine so quickly. And then Gert says, so if you can do it that quickly, how, how long is your shift today? And how come your pile is that? small, right? It's very evocative of the scene, right? Uh, whether consciously or unconsciously. So if you, if you can indeed work that efficiently, how come you haven't been working that efficiently since the moment you got to work today? And then they bring him out to the back and they threaten to shoot him and the gun, the gun doesn't shoot. It's a terrible scene. The guy thinks he's going to die. And then the gun, uh, what's the word? It, um, it hitches. Misfire. Right, misfire. Jams. It, it jams. Thank you. So it's a terrible scene, but it's evocative of if your ruthlessness is is ruthless for his own sake, then near max productivity is no longer a barrier. It's no longer a ceiling. Push it even worse than that. Um, okay, I think Joanne, I saw Joanna's hand up next, so go ahead. I think another quality of a ruthless tyrant is this concept that you're so focused on oppressing the other, that the thought of um, protecting or doing good for your own people becomes, um, you know, way down the totem pole in the scheme of things for you. And I think that's going to become even more evident in the plagues. Say more about that last sentence. Um, Because time after time in the plagues, you know, especially by the time Paro starts to get warnings about the plagues, if you were concerned about your own people... Mm -hmm. You would heed the warning. You would protect your people. But yeah. 
Very good, Joanna. And so if you combine the last two sentences, comments together, what Rick and Joanna said, we're seeing the Torah, as we go slowly, really describe what a maniac is and really describe what a tyrant is and really describe the difference between uh, uh, you know, a, a benevolent autocrat um, and, and a tyrant who, even when it seems like the tyrant is trying to do what's best for the society and the civilization and the people in it, is, um, uh, is, is a, is a madman or a mad woman and, and only focused and it, even to that society and that economy's own, uh, dis, um, disfavor is simply expressing ruthlessness for its own sake. Great. That's a, that's a wonderful connection. Thank you for that. Uh, Joanna, uh, Norm, and then we'll keep going. While we were still talking about the cognates or the translations of the word, the German is actually Stoppo. It is a direct relationship to the Yiddish word stup, and which means to stuff. Um, and it means stuff also in German. And they were they sort of they kneaded or stuffed the straw in with the clay. Hmm. And in the same way, it has numerous meanings um, in German and in Yiddish, some of which are appropriate for this class and some of which are not, um, that you that use that same concept. Interesting. Thank you for that, Norm. Uh, now, the next time I hear the word shtup, I'll think of schmote and not other things. Barry. Yeah, I had a, I come on earlier, then my whole internet went out and had to go back in again. Um, so as a clay person, um, uh, uh, straw, meaning the long strands of straw that grow in the ground, like, cannot be um, mushed uh, into clay. Uh, that that won't work. Uh, if if the clay was wet, like liquidy soup, you, you might stir long straw into that. But when it dried, it would crack because the long strands of straw would not adhere to the clay. But now we have the word stubble, which I imagine to be crushed up pieces of uh, straw. Now that can be uh, either stirred into wet clay or kneaded into uh, um, clay that's more like dough, um, but it has to be crushed up pieces of straw. Hmm. Once again, reminding us that this material is always better studied with both a historian and a potter amongst us. Uh, and I'll give you this opportunity to praise Barry for years, if not decades, I'm even, I'm even sure of being the, the producer of the Kiddush Cups that we give to the Mitzvah students um, as a as a artist as an artisan potter. So uh, you're 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 uh, part of the legacy that every bar by Mitzvah student gets in our community. We're so appreciative of that. Thank you, Barry. Okay, back to Joel because we did the Rashi on Tevin, but now we're going to get the Rashi on Livenim, which is interesting because if I'm not mistaken, this is one of the very few times where the um, actually, no, take it back. Tevin appears in the, early in the verse too. I was thinking that it was out of order because the last word of the verse is Tevin, but I forgot that it's also in Lotosifun Latte Tevin. So Rashi comments on Tevin and now on Levenim. Joel? Levenim, Kulish, below Azid. I have T I U L E S, Tiulis. So we'll, we'll look at that um, Loazi Rashi in a bit to finish off the comment of Rashi. Sure. Shosim um, mitit, that is made from the clay. 
Um, and it's dried out in an oven. Oh, uh, no. In the sun. The sun. Chama is the sun here, right? Um, and there are those who um, dry it out in, the, um, in an oven. Yeah, or a furnace. Good. Okay, so the first thing Rashi does is give us another French word. Before I bring up um, uh, the, the Otsar Rashi okay. again. Chama is, one, is another one of those words that, for Barbara's sake, that modern Israel that didn't take the biblical word. They, they took, a, took a different word. Right, and also moon, right? Yeah, we have Yareach and Levana, right? They're the same word, but they're just a, a, a different different synonyms of the same word. So if anyone who's who has not, quote-unquote, checked and cheated... And before I bring up the Loezi Rashi, anyone want to give a guess as to what the French that's being rendered here as tule or tulish? Tiles. 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 Very good. Okay. So let me bring it, let me bring it up uh, again. Um, let's see what the Otsar Loezi Rashi shows. I'm pretty sure that Barry is correct. And and, and the, the, the sun in Egypt there, uh, uh, Toba would agree, would be as hot as a furnace. <laughs> right. Um, so entry number 3071 in in uh, Lozi Rashi, our verse, verse chapter five and seven, the, the word in question was the Benim. Rashi renders it as Tulish, Tulis, that would be spelled, like the transliteration of that into English was Tule, and the modern Hebrew word, which I didn't know this word, is Rafim. So the, the things that are made from the um, from that mixture of the straw and the clay. Now, uh, is anyone, uh, was anyone on this trip, anyone in this class on the Morocco trip with us? Yes, Rebecca and Leonard. What does this remind you of to put you on the spot? Or anyone else who was on that? I think Sue was all, no, Sue was not on it. Anyone who was in Morocco with us, what does this remind you of? Barbara, what does this remind you of? In Fez, we went to a factory in Fez where, where we see people making exquisite tiles. I think of a tile as like a beautiful thing to put, you know, to, to you know, to line a, ba a backstop in a kitchen, but how a tile is often clay. And we saw the production that's probably not changed in hundreds of thousands of years of people getting the raw material and mixing it together and then forming it and then firing it and then painting it. And it was really, in my mind, it connected the word tile with this notion of, of of a of a of a of a of a lumpy clay that has both you know the the, the liquid in it of the of the mud and also the organic material that holds it together. That's what at least it reminds me of. Good. Um, anybody else want to say anything on this Rashi, right? Uh, where he's just defining the term and he's um, telling us the two different ways of making it. If not, I want to show you something else, which I'm surprised Rashi doesn't make reference to in this comment. This is not the first time that we've had the word levenim in the Torah, nor is it the first time that Rashi comments on it. So back in the Tower of Bab Babel story, um, chapter 11 of Breshit, verse 3, I'm on the left side of the page, each person said to his fellow, Hava nil banal benim. There, Joel, is your, your bricking bricks, right? C come, let us 
you know, lovein the lovenim, um, make bricks. The nisrafa lisrafa will, that's another one, will we'll, we'll, we'll burn it to a burnt crisp. Vatahi halivena laaven. It's a really oddly constructed verse. The, 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 the livena, the, the burning or the making of the bricks will become a, like a stone to us. The hachemar hayalahem lachomer is translated here as the bitumen served them as mortar. Forget about breaking down that verse so much because that's when we get back to Parshat, uh, you know, Noah later on in the Torah, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. What Rashi says, that's what that's how you would make the Lebanim, what we would call bricks, which are called tule. We now know that word, burn them in a furnace. Interestingly, here Rashi only refers to the uh, making them in the furnace. And for some reason, maybe, maybe this is Rashi's knowledge of or guess at the way these things were done in Egypt, says it could also be done in uh, in the in the heat of the sun. Uh, Rick and then Barry. Um, just before we leave, a sense there's a nice little trope thing. There's a yativ on Haim, Yehu, they will go or um, whatever tense that is. But it's like a little bit of a foreshadow of the Israelites leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, the Lehu we've seen before. He he tells Moses and Aaron to go, so it's all about going and not going. Mm. But but I, I like the. I like the little uh, glimpse of uh, them leaving. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought about the glimpse of the leaving. I've always, as a laner, found the yativ on that haim to be like an exclamation point because that's where that's where the tyranny comes out. Up until now, it's been hard enough for them to make the bricks when we've given them, but now haim yahu, they're the ones who are going to go out and gather it themselves, as if they have any more energy, uh, any, any energy left. Yeah. Barry and then Joanna, you're muted, Barry. Uh, going back to clay and the properties of uh, uh, drying the clay out in the sun or a low level uh, heated oven is called bisque wear. Uh, bisque wear over time with rain and water will wear down. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's hard, but it will crumble. Uh, if you put it into a, a higher hot um, oven at the highest temperature. Uh, the chemical properties of the clay changes and it, it comes out hard as stone. In fact, that's what we call stoneware. Hmm. Hmm. You mean stoneware is not from stone, it's from clay that is produced in a way that's as hard as stone? It, it's, been, it's been fired at, at, a high, at a very high temperature over you know, 2000 degrees. Wow. And its chemical property changes. And, and so uh, we, we call that stoneware. Uh, it, it, it's not as hard as stone, like from a mountain stone, but it, it's, it will last for a long time. And that, so that's what, they're, that's what they're getting out here in your, term, your terms. That's helpful. It has implications for kashrut because stone, actual stoneware does not need to be kashered or, or, or can be kashered easily. But things that are made from clay, most people would say, they cannot be kashered. So right, because you know, clay, clay stoneware steam seems like stone, but it, it it cracks will be in there, and those cracks will you know cash root. Thank you, Barry, Joanna, and then Rebecca. That's probably all we'll have time for today. Um, 
I too was having internet problems at the beginning and I only caught bits of the conversation about Kush. So I'm not sure if this came up, but as we were talking now, what popped out at me was the use of the verb koshashu. Why not the more common verbs for gather, asof or lilkot? And um, the other thing that popped into my head, interestingly, when I as I started to think about this shorash, is another place in another context where it's used, which is in Bamidbar with the stick gatherer on Shabbat. So it seems possibly that this verb is used specifically to gather short, stubbly things, which then sort of supports the definition of tevin that we were talking about. Yeah, so when your internet was out, we had brought that verse up onto the screen uh, because that is uh, the the other, I think it's the only other place where kuf kuf shin shin is used in the Torah, could be wrong. Um, And what we'll get to next time is, is 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 Rashi's very, well, I think it's like a one-word comment. Yeah, so I won't, I won't give the story away, but it's a it, one-word it comment. The, it is the only other place in Chumash. It comes up once else in Tanakh where uh, Elijah um, encounters this woman who's also uh, Mekoshesh Eitzim. Um, Got it. Um, so, and the question is, uh, Joel was mentioning before that the, the the is that common Hebrew thing of where the verb matches the noun. If, if kosh as a noun existed in concept back then, which I don't know, we could have had another, because it could have been the koshishulahem kosh. But, the, but it, it's close enough that it suggests that maybe the reason why it's koshesh here and not locate, and Rashi will weigh in on that, is because the verb koshesh might be built from the word that, mean, that, that actually means straw. Uh, Rebecca, last comment of the day. Okay, I'll make it really quick. I'm still with the word lilaben and levanim. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, what I think of when I hear the word lilaben has to do with heating something to the point where it turns white. And I think, Good. I'm not sure about ceramics exactly, but I think the, you're taking the clay and by burning it, you're actually, you're making it what you're, you're bleaching it, I guess. And that word is later used in other contexts of really, you know, even a heated discussion on something to, to get the essence out of something. So I think, I don't know if the word livena comes from making something white, but I think Lila Ben, there might be some connection there. That's great, right? Because we would normally not associate what we're of uh, the English word brick with anything that has to do with something white in going back to Kashrut. One of the ways in which you kosher something is called libun kal or libun gamor. And it's heating something to the point of it's being blanched of all of its color color. And that will uh, help it get rid of any taste that was brought into, into it. So that's libun, it's, it's light, libun kal light lightning or libun chamor, like more, more intense uh, whitening of the object. So those things, I think, are very much related. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to TBA.com. LA.org.